Thank you. Thank you, all of you guys, for sharing. So last Sunday, we got an opportunity to hear about five local partners of areas here in New Albany where we're trying to invest and build relationships to share the gospel. This morning, we heard about three extended partners, St. Louis, that we're going to be trying to work with more, and of course, Baptist Friendship House and Eight Days of Hope, and next Sunday, you'll be hearing about some of our international work. So all of which you have opportunity to, to invest in, to pray, to give, and to get involved, to go and serve. So uh, if you have your Bible, with that being said, I invite you to open with me to the book of Acts, chapter 1. Acts, chapter 1. So we continue this uh, emphasis on mission uh, here for this month. How many of you could provide a testimony to other people that over the years, as you've learned the Bible and as you've walked with Jesus, that your perspectives about life and things have changed. Anybody? Certainly been the case in my life. Um, one example was has to do with missions. Uh, I grew up going to a Baptist church in Michigan, and I remember hearing about missions in my church. And our church had a women's missionary society. Anybody remember when it was the WMS? Women's, anybody? Women's Missionary Society. And then it changed to the Women's Missionary Union. And then it changed to Women on Mission. But that's where I heard about missions growing up in church. Older women in the church would have a monthly meeting and they would study missionaries and study about their work and I think they read missionary reports and read the Bible and prayed. Then after their missions, monthly meetings, they ate little finger sandwiches, drank coffee and made quilts. And once a year they would invite a missionary to the church and usually on Sunday nights they would come and they had those old slide projectors. Some of you have no memory of slide projectors. They'd click the slide and they would show these pictures of missionaries in the Philippines and Haiti and Africa. And usually they were dressed strange. I remember seeing them and seeing how they were dressed and they would worship in these uh, church buildings made of sticks with thatched roofs and they would sit on the floor or wooden benches and, and we'd see pictures of all of that. And then the ladies would regularly make sure that all the kids in the church grew up and had some kind of missions educations. GAs and RAs and actines and, and so they were responsible for missions education in the church and then finally once a year they would have a giant bake sale and they would raise money from those bake sales to send missionaries and support pastors and all the things that they did and these ladies were godly sincere women of the church doing all of those things and I remember uh, it all sounded kind of boring to me just kind of boring stuff. Then I went through college and was Bible college and had to take a, a missions class in Bible college. And this brother who led the class, he was older, and we had a book by Herbert Cain. It was about the work of missions, and I remember going through that book. And there was nothing mentioned in the book about quilts or bake sales, but I went through the book, and and the class seemed pretty boring to me. And and then I reflected back on some of the worst pastoral advice I was ever given. It was by a New Testament professor of that college. And he said to me, hey, Charlie, when you start pastoring a church someday, don't worry about that mission stuff. 
That's what was said. Then Mindy and I moved to seminary, and I have no memory of thinking biblically, deeply about missions, even going through seminary. And the result is, when I began pastoring a church, that missions in the local church was just like all other ministries of the church. We had a children's ministry. We had student ministry. We had men's ministries, women's ministries. We had Sunday school ministry. We had choir. Had all of these ministries. And so based upon however you were gifted and wherever you were interested, you just volunteered to serve in one of those areas of ministry. And I will confess to you that everything that I have just described to you about missions is extremely flawed. It's very flawed. And worse than flawed, it's as biblically ignorant as anything that you could, could talk about. One of my favorite phrases in the Bible, but God, but God. Over the years, God has been gracious to us and began revealing to us as we study the Bible a theme, a ribbon of truth that runs from Genesis to Revelation, and it's about missions. You and I worship a missional God. He's a missional God. He sent his son, he sent him on mission to seek and to save the lost. His mission has never changed. God's mission is to bring all peoples of the earth to a place of knowing and worshiping him. His design in the book of Genesis, his plan with Adam and Eve right from the start was that they would be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. And in so doing, their descendants would bring offerings of worship to God. And you know the story, sin was introduced and God's created order has been groaning in travail ever since. Today, because of the fall and due to the effects of sin, God is not receiving the glory that he deserves from the nations. Paul makes the point, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of what? The glory of God. Sin keeps Peoples keeps us from bringing glory to God. And the consequences of that sin, Romans 6, 23, is death. Men and women and all people groups and nations of the earth failing to bring God glory results in death. Physical death and eternal spiritual separation from God. And so the work of missions, plural, rests upon the mission, singular. God is a missional God, and he has one singular mission, and God's mission, the supreme interest of our God, is for his glory to fill the earth. More than he loving you and me, and more than him loving all people, we know about the love of God, that's certainly true. His supreme mission is his glory, is his name. The prophet Habakkuk foretells of a day and time that just as the waters cover and the, fill the seas so the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. Therefore, practically, we as a church, we don't have, uh, we, we use the word missions, plural, to refer to all of our different missions efforts, starting where we are and making disciples and extending, but we don't really have missions, we have a mission. 
We have one singular mission as a church. We exist as a congregation, each of us individually as followers of Christ. Our single mission is to advance the glory of God. Whether you're a school teacher, you're a carpenter, you're an electrician, you're a professor, uh, whatever you do, doctor, lawyer, attorney, whatever, our mission is to advance the glory of God. Singular in everything that we do. Think about Jesus when he taught his disciples to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, what? Hallowed be your name. That's first. May your name be hallowed. May your name be glorified. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, what is that? May your name receive glory and praise on the earth like it receives in heaven. That's God's supreme interest for his peoples, for his name to be glorified. Well, how do you and I do that? Well, by walking with Jesus and abiding in him and abiding in his word, being intimate with him. Romans 12, Paul says, by offering our bodies as living sacrifices to him, being worshipers. And Jesus promises that as we do that, that we will bear fruit. We will bear fruit. Abide in me, my word in you. That means be intimate with me, be intimate with my word, and you will bear fruit. You remember that later in John 15, he says, for apart from me, you can do nothing. What is the nothing referring to? The nothing is mean you'll not bear fruit. Intimacy, you remember we going through the book of Ruth. When Boaz and Ruth were intimate, they had fruit. There was Obed. Likewise, when you and I are intimate with Jesus, when we're intimate in his word, Jesus says, I will produce fruit, fruit of the spirit. You know, you know, one of the reasons we don't get along with other people is because the Holy Spirit's not producing fruit in us. And so he wants to change the way we relate to people. And he also will reproduce tangible fruit, making disciples. And that just, you know... You, it just comes out of us abiding with Christ, being intimate with him, being his worshipers. And so last week we looked at the Great Commission, Matthew 28, as you live, make disciples, right? Lead others to bring glory to God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the context of the Great Commission was his disciples were worshiping him. You remember in Matthew 28 when Jesus first appears and it says some doubted, but some began to worship. And as they worship Jesus, then this commission, co-mission, flows out of this worship. And it's a great co-mission. He's with us. And so as followers of Jesus, our mission singularly is to make disciples for his glory. This morning, I invite you to read with me in your Bible uh, in Acts chapter 1. I'm going to try to go through this very quickly. Some of you are not going to like some of the things I'm going to share with you in a few minutes but uh, I'm not really concerned about whether you like it. I'm more concerned whether it's the truth. And there's something for us to apply and learn from in just a few moments. Uh, my aim this morning is for us to be stronger missionally as a church. Right? Missions. Um, God will bless you and I individually as believers, and he will strengthen and bless us in proportion to how much we understand his mission. Uh, it's, it's foundational. So read with me Acts chapter 1, starting at verse 1. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, 
until the day in which he was taken up after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days, and this is important, speaking of the things pertaining to what? The kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, and this is, this is a, a big question been teaching about the kingdom and then they ask Lord will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel to Israel to us and he said to them it is not for you to know the times or seasons which the father has put in his own authority but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Pray with me. Holy Spirit, would you speak? We long for ears to hear what you will say through your word. And after hearing, we ask that you would produce a deep sense of conviction that we might act and respond with faith and devotion for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. In your Bible, Luke writes about 100 pages of the New Testament, all of which are contained in the Gospel of Luke and Acts, written as one work with two sections. Luke chapter 1 begins with an intro. Luke writes, it seemed like a good thing to me to write an orderly account to you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know with certainty the things in which you were instructed. Paul, or Luke's writing to Luke, that you would know with certainty the things in which you were instructed. Well, the things there is a reference to the gospel, to the person and work of Jesus Christ, of who he was and what he had achieved through the cross. And so under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, the physician Luke writes to this Roman official, Theophilus, a gospel account to make his faith stronger. And then here in Acts chapter 1, notice the first verse. He says, the former account I made to you, O Theophilus, the former account referring to the gospel, and note he says in... 1b of our text, first verse, second part, of all that Jesus began to do and teach. That's a big word, began. Luke makes it clear that everything that Jesus started, everything that he began, he's still doing. That's what the book of Acts lets us see, that Jesus is still working. Everything that Jesus began to do and everything that Jesus began to teach is still being done. It's still being taught. 
The book of Acts is a record of the actions of the Holy Spirit working through his church, and it's still happening. His teaching's still going on. Jesus is still at work, amen? And then in verses 2 and 3 of the text, it says that after Jesus died and was buried and was raised from the dead, then for the next 40 days, he presented himself alive to the 12, to his disciples, giving proof, giving, demonstrating that he was alive, that he, was, that he had been risen from the dead. And then it says he gave them commandments, speaking and teaching of things pertaining to the kingdom, pertaining to the kingdom of God. Now read with me again verse 4 and 5. And being assembled together with them, Jesus commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise which they had heard. For John truly baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So Jesus has appeared to them, and they are, have moved from a spiritual state, a spiritual condition of depression and fear and anxiety. Their hopes were dashed when they saw him die on the cross. And now for the next 40 days, he begins to appear to them, and they're fired up. They begin to become re-energized. They know Jesus is alive, that he's back on the scenes. And so all of their hopes are revived. Verses 4 and 5, what are they doing? Well, they're doing exactly what Jesus told them to do. They've gathered together back in Jerusalem, waiting for power. Come on, power. Come on, power. And if you go back to the end of Luke's gospel, I just, all of this, to, to make this point, I want to share with you how it ends. Luke's gospel in chapter 24, in verses 36 through 43, Jesus re reappears. Now, he's, he's been crucified, he's died, he's been raised from the dead, and he begins to reappear. And in Luke 24, verse 36, he appears to these guys, and he says, hey, offers them peace, and he says, brothers, it's me. I'm alive. Don't be afraid. And then in verses 49 through, or 39 through 43, Jesus says this. Brothers, look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he said this, he showed his hands and his feet. While they still did not believe because of joy and marveled, he said to them, have you any food here? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took it and he ate in their presence. What's the point? The point is they know Jesus is alive. He's back. And then look again, starting at verse 44, look at these instructions. Then he said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached, proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning right here in Jerusalem. 
And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. And then he led them out as far as Bethany, lifted up his hands, and he blessed them. He prayed for them. And it came to pass while he blessed them and that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. They know he's alive. And then he gives them these instructions. He has a Bible study with them. It says he opened their understanding so that they would comprehend the scriptures. In other words, he's building them up through the word of who he is and what they were to do. And then in verse 46, he resets on the gospel. Guys, remember the Christ, the Savior had to suffer and die and be raised again the third day. And then the mission is, this good news is to be proclaimed starting here in Jerusalem, starting here in New Albany, and extending this good news to the nations. His methodology is given there in the text. It's twofold. There's power and process. When the Holy Spirit comes, you'll receive power, and this is the process. The process is for you and I to be his witnesses. And he concludes, he prays for them, he leaves them, And here in Acts chapter 1, we see that they're doing exactly as Jesus told them to do. They've gone back to Jerusalem, they're gathered together, and they're worshiping the Lord. They're worshiping the risen Christ, praising him and blessing his name. And then it gets interesting, as if that's not interesting. Forty days, he's been appearing to them, he's been teaching them the kingdom, teaching them just go through the Gospels and study everything that Jesus teaches about the kingdom. The kingdom of God is with you. The kingdom of God is among you. The kingdom of God is is within you. The kingdom of God is still coming. It will become, it will one day be fully consummated. The kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom of God. And then verse six is a very profound verse in the text. These disciples asked Jesus a huge question. And I would propose to you that verse 6, this question that they asked to Jesus is the obvious obstacle to the church fulfilling the Great Commission. What do they ask? He's teaching about the kingdom, about the kingdom, the kingdom of God. And they say and ask, Lord, is this the time now that you're back and you're alive and we're going to receive all this power? Is this the time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Are you going to restore the kingdom to us? That's what they ask. That word restore is from a Greek word that means literally to reconstitute. And every time that word is used in the Bible, it refers to home, health, and organization. Home, health, and organization. Lord, now that you're back, we're going to receive all this power, all power, and you've extended all authority to us. Is now the time that you're going to rebuild the temple? Is now when you're going to overthrow Rome and you're going to restore Jerusalem and restore us to our days of glory and as they were in Solomon's time? Lord, is this the time that we can expect for our homes to be bigger and better than ever? Is this the time that we can 
Expect that health conditions are going to be great and the organization of our country is going to be powerful again. I read verse 6 and kind of wonder if the disciples of Jesus there were all sitting gathered together in unity with red baseball hats and navy blue t-shirts with white letters on the shirts and white letters on the hats that says, let's restore Israel. Or for our understanding, let's make Israel great again. Gathered, looking to Jesus with confident hope that he was going to restore their nation to her glory days. He's going to build up the military and strengthen the economy and provide better jobs and eliminate pagan religions and lower interest rates and make housing more affordable and make access to education more readily accessible to everyone, to all Israelis and Israelis and put new synagogues on every corner and eliminate Samaritans and Gentiles from coming into their country and lower Roman tax rates. Jesus, now that you're back, now that you're alive, and you've given us authority and power, Jesus, will you give us three more years? Will you make Israel great again? Is this when you're going to restore our kingdom to us and make our nation the most powerful and prosperous nation on the face of the earth? Is this a time that you restore Israeli pride? I wonder if the disciples were ready to launch the new blue messianic club or if they would be certain to restore Jesus, to, to restore red traditional Jewish values, to put together messianic rallies, to pass out red hats and blue t-shirts, chanting three more years, three more years, we will prevail, we will prevail, holding up signs, 33 AD, more of Jesus, vote for the carpenter. Launching ads in the Jerusalem Journal. He came to this country as a foreigner, son of a tradesman, who knows what it's like to work with his hands, who understands the working man. Vote for the builder. Vote for the builder. Three more years. Let's make Israel great. Kind of quiet in here. Who does that sound like? pretty close to home. Oh, that preacher made me mad today. He must be a communist. Or worse, he's, he's a woke Democrat. And you know, I heard he's from Michigan. He's a Yankee. And he doesn't care about the SEC conference. Have you noticed his accent's not Mississippian? Look at, look at how Jesus responds to their question. Verse 7. It's a rebuke. What's he say to them? It's not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. Let me paraphrase that. He says, this is not for you to know, just to be even more clear, this is none of your business. It's none of your business. You, you parents get asked this question all the time, right, from your kids. Hey, mom and dad, what about this? And why is this? And, and we say, you don't need to know that. <laughs> you, don't need to, you, you, you don't need to know that. Let me ask you, would you not agree that his disciples were not thinking properly? 
that the way Jesus was thinking, what he was trying to get across, wasn't in line with the way they were thinking. Jesus' teaching, his values, his expectations weren't lined up with what they wanted. What's the issue? The issue in verse 6 is his disciples are focused on themselves. He's teaching about the kingdom. They're thinking about themselves. Wouldn't you say that verse 6 and then, well, how Jesus finally answers that in verse 8, wouldn't you say that those two verses are on totally different planes? Verse 8 has always been God's plan. Back in Genesis, Adam and Eve originally were supposed to replenish, fill the earth, and all of their descendants would bring him glory. You remember when Cain and Abel bring sacrifice and worship to the Lord? Who taught them that? To worship and to glorify God. It had to be their parents. That was God's plan. And then sin forts it. You remember in Genesis 12 when God calls Abram and says, he sends him out as a missionary. I want you to leave Ur of the Chaldees and I want you to go and go to a different land, go to a different place and I'll bless you, Abraham, because of your faithfulness and I'll bless your family and through you, all other nations, people groups, races will be blessed through you. It sounds like the Great Commission to me. In Revelation chapter 7, one day, see all these faces that look different than us here in northern Mississippi? It represents Revelation 7 when God's plan is fully realized, when every people group, every nation, every tribe, every country is in the presence of God, worshiping him and giving him praise and his glory. That's his agenda. It's always been his plan to send his disciples, to send his church out. The problem of the text is the application of the text. Those early first disciples were focused on themselves. They weren't concerned about the spiritual destiny of the nations. They didn't care about Samaritans. They didn't care about Gentiles. They wanted nothing to do with them. Jesus says, yes, you'll receive power, and I'll give you power for what? What's the power for? The power is for regeneration, for new birth, for salvation. What's the process? Witnesses. Witnesses were the process, starting where you are and work outwardly even to the ends of the earth, to the nations. What hinders us from the mission? Well, we, like those disciples in the New Testament text, are out of focus. We've fallen in love with this current world and all of its things and our politics and material gains and ease and comforts. And our love for this present world and this present life has choked out our love for Jesus and for his kingdom and for the peoples that he loves. I've heard Don say, he and I, we've had conversations over and over. People do what they want to do. And he's right. All of us do what is most important to us. And what is most important to us is rooted in what we believe and what we understand. What did Jesus say in Matthew 6, 33? You, you probably learned the verse. Seek ye first. Who's he talking to? He's talking to his followers, his disciples. Seek ye first, what? The American kingdom? Seek first the kingdom of God. And his righteousness, and then let everything else shake out after that. But let that be first. 
Nothing, nothing wrong with everything else. Nothing wrong with politics and poli- policies matter. Policies affect people, but that's not first. His kingdom, his righteousness, his glory, that's first. And it's interesting during those 40, 40 days, that's what he's teaching about the kingdom, about the kingdom. And they just don't get it. And here we are continuing to seek the kingdom of God or are we seeking the kingdom of the American dream? Do you think that God loves stars and stripes more than he loves a hammer and a sickle? Do you think we wrap wrap the gospel in the American flag? Let me ask you today, one aspect of your life rightly demonstrates that fulfilling the Great Commission is the priority of your life. Is there anything that comes before fulfilling this mission? What's first? His kingdom, his name, his glory, and worshiping him? Or fill in the blank? Career, kids, spouse, family, country. How does the way we manage our finances reflect getting the gospel to the nations? I did the math correctly this time, Brother Steve. And Southern Baptist churches in the United States took up over $12 billion last year in our churches that, we, that have just been reported. 40 plus thousand church took up $12 billion and, and the Lottie Moon Christmas offering is 175 million. That's about 0.2%, less than 1%, 0.2 or 3% of less than 1% that all the money we take up as Baptists in this country ever get to the nations. And so I very unapologetically want to urge you to give, to give. And I, I remember there was a light bulb that came on for me a few years ago when I was thinking about what the Bible teaches about you and I growing in Christ, being mature as disciples. And so I, for years I'd emphasize, well, read the Bible and pray and go to church and surround yourself with other Christians. Those things produce spiritual growth. And something that I completely neglected accidentally over the years was Learn to give your money to the Lord. That's a part of spiritual growth because you'll never grow and mature in Christ until he controls your finances. Jesus said more about where our treasure and our heart is and it has to do with finances. It's, it's imperative for spiritual growth. Hillcrest, I believe that God has a word for us just as he did to those first disciples and the good news is that they responded with faith. If you go on to read the book of Acts, it says these men turned the world upside down. How are you going to respond? What kind of changes would God gradually cause you to make in your life? Go as you live, as you live, make disciples. Baptizing, teaching them all for what? The glory of God, all for his glory. I'm going to say we bow with prayers. Our deacons, would you guys come? We're going to invite you to the Lord's table as we close this morning.
if you know Christ as your Savior. You're a follower of Jesus and you've repented of your sins and you've been baptized and you're striving to live for Christ and live for his glory that invites you to come to the table. And as you come to the table, it would be a reminder to us. You remember Jesus, as often as you do this, let it be a reminder to you to remember me and what I've done for you, that you'd have forgiveness in life. And as you do this, that God would somehow use this to cause us to continue to, to be motivated to die to self and to live for him and to live for his glory as we remember the gospel, as we think of the gospel. Father, have your way among us. We pray that we would live missional lives, that our time, our homes, our families, our finances would reflect, Lord, that you're first and your kingdom and your righteousness is first above all things. For your glory we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You come to the table and receive the bread and the cup and after you've been served, we'll all wait and take it together as a sign, as an expression of our unity in Christ. So you come.